Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Forrest Schomer of Inside Passage Seeds to talk about growing, collecting, and selling seeds. Forrest started urban farming in 1969 in Berkeley, California. Through the People's Park movement, he was launched into gardening and got the basic training and motivation for becoming a seed man. He has been a full-time, independent, professional seed provider since 1972 and has owned, led, or helped launch at least four seed companies and founded the nonprofit Abundant Life Seed Foundation, which produced and distributed up to 600 types of open-pollinated vegetable, herb, and flower seeds. Since 1974, Forrest has been giving workshops on seed saving and the importance of genetic diversity and was the keynote speaker for the 2012 Northwest Permaculture Convergence and also the Regeneration Seed and Plant Exchange in Hawaii. Forrest had a radio show for a couple of years with 30-minute interviews featuring a variety of people, including many permaculturists. Welcome to the show today, Forrest. 
Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here with you. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? I think I'll go back even a little bit before the People's Park movement and then swing into that. Perfect. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and Chicago has a motto, which I think all school kids learn at some point, and it is uh, Latin, herbs in horto. Mm. That means city in a garden. So I would say that uh, very early on, uh, I was impressed by the idea of a city being a green space. Mm. And we had mm -hmm. that heritage because it was designed into the city as it grew. The uh, parks and the boulevard system were you know, world-renowned, and they still are, I'm uh -huh. sure, to some degree. Uh, and uh, growing up in that environment, uh, I guess I just wanted to go out and <laughs> make it better. Yeah. So, I wound up as a city planning student and went to graduate school in Berkeley and UC Berkeley, and I just happened to land there right about the time that the People's Park movement really exploded overnight into the um, right into the thick of the urban setting, mm -hmm. uh, three blocks off campus from where I was doing my studies. Uh, people took over. Uh, vacant block that belonged to the university for redevelopment there had been a, just a big mud puddle for years uh -huh. with people parking cars randomly on it and there weren't any other neighborhood parks so uh, the community just uh, like took, people in Berkeley will do they just took uh, it over took it over and nice. uh, overnight we rolled out uh, sod for lawns we planted flowers we Oh my um, gosh. People came, played music there, which was at that time very uncommon in the uh -huh. street. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then there'd be like a big galvanized 55 gallon drum with uh, stew cooking in it, and mm. it would feed hundreds of people, and everybody started to bring food to it. So it was like an enormous potluck. Wow. Uh, and this went on for six weeks, mm -hmm. and then uh, overnight, the governor called in the National Guard, oh. put up a chain link fence around it, mm -hmm. and posted the uh, guardsmen there to keep the community from tearing the fence down. Well, uh, the short version of it is there were some riots and marches and a lot of incidents around that. And after a couple of weeks, things kind of settled down. Everybody went home for the summer, and a few of us were left uh, waiting for what do we do now. And at that point, I was. Uh, found by an elderly garden writer, teacher uh -huh. named Lucy Hupp. She came over from a suburban little uh, acre that she had not too far away from Berkeley, and she would come into town once a week, pick up about four or five of us that she saw as prospects, and uh -huh. took us out there and taught us how to garden, how to prepare food, canning, uh, flower... Wow cutting herb collection and one of the important things for me was she showed me how to collect seeds mm. i remember the very first thing that she showed me was love in a mist which is nigella uh -huh. and it comes in a sort of a shaker when the pod opens up it's real easy to just shake the seeds out and i thought i really like this part that led to kind of a keynote for me as i moved more into gardening i moved from there, ultimately, I was in Seattle within about two years, gardening and starting to collect seeds. And at that time, I was 
also managing the first uh, independent natural food store in Seattle. That was early in 1972 or late in 1971. Wow. And I thought it would be really great if other than just having people come here and buy stuff from us, that we could be helpful in getting them started on growing their own. Mm-hmm. Not a common practice in the early 70s. Absolutely. That is so I went down to the Pike Street Market where there was a little seed shop that had been there for almost 100 years. And it was in the process of closing. The economy had shifted and they just weren't making it anymore. Or maybe the older generation had died off. So. Uh-huh. They, uh, they liked the idea that I was going to start a seed company, and they gave me their little packaging scoops, oh, which nice. are like four grams, seven grams, uh-huh. these little different measures. And I figured out then which ones matched up with which vegetables and mm-hmm. proceeded to start packaging in little envelopes. They were, the envelopes were hand-stamped, and the first round of them back in 72 were eight cents a packet. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah, that's how things were before inflation. Right, right. <laughs> so, and then really interesting to me when uh, some of the scoops got lost and I thought, well, how am I going to replace them? I found out that gun shells are exactly the same size as these little scoops were. Oh, interesting. Which were made out of brass. Yeah. So I had uh, someone uh, in the jewelry trade make me these little scoops out of gun shells. So. You could call it, you know, uh, swords into plowshares. <laughs> nice. And I still have some of those scoops now. It's uh, 40-some years later, and I still use them almost daily. Uh-huh. So I feel like the, just the magnetism of what they've been through, over 100 years old, yeah. they've seen millions of seeds pass through, and they kind of bring, uh, you could say, a, a vibration to what oh. follows, you know, oh, kind yeah. of put their little blessing on the seed packets. Mm-hmm. Nice. So that was in the early 70s. Right. So we did display quite a selection of open pollinated seeds that I was able to buy in the seed market Mm -hmm. uh, with no uh, mercury or other treatments on them. And that became my objective was to keep the seeds as pure as possible and as possible for people to raise their own seed from that, which they would not be able to do with hybrid seeds. At that time, there were no GM seeds yet. And plant patenting protection didn't come until 1980. Right. So it was really being sort of a seed bank uh, for anyone who was aware of the possibility of uh-huh. growing their own seeds. Yeah. Of course, that begged the question of like, how do you grow your own seeds? So within two years, I was giving workshops. And for quite a while after that, through the Abundant Life Seed Foundation, which was a nonprofit 501c3, you know, tax exempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, went around the region and beyond doing these workshops and did over 200 of them. Uh, it's kind of my road show. Uh-huh. Nice. And I still do workshops, although not as often, and I tend to go more for what I do now, which is working with native plants rather than uh, garden vegetables. Uh-huh. But I can still do that. And in fact, two years ago, I did a little tour in Turkey that was set up by permaculture friends doing seed workshops as I went around that country. Uh-huh. And I've done the same thing in Argentina, Chile, and uh, Colombia. Where do you, where you travel there and collect seeds? Not so much collect, but meet up with groups of interested people that had no idea that they could be growing their own seeds, uh-huh. or they had some idea but needed more hands-on training. I just went in and did my little uh, workshop in their midst using their plants, 
so that they would have that sense of confidence that yeah. they don't have to depend on some mass market uh, and maybe government controlled in some countries opportunity to grow their own to, vegetables. To grow their own seeds. A lot of people don't know that, you know, plants basically when they go to, they flower and then they go to seed and then you can seed, save those seeds. Exactly. That's the, that's the, that's where the cycle is it that begins simple? to recycle. Yeah. Is it that simple? Well, there's know-how. There's, first of all, there's hands-on skills. And, sec- and the second and more important thing really is understanding how pollination works so mm-hmm. that uh, you get the result you want from the seeds that you save. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you save something that is uh, a species, I'll give you an example of an herb, let's say lemon balm, mm-hmm. Melissa officinalis. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's only one Melissa species out there that people are going to be growing. So when you save that seed, you get lemon balm. But if you save a cabbage, Brassica oleracea, you've got so many different kinds that can right. cross with each other because mm-hmm. they're all selections from the original wild cabbage. Right. That would be cauliflower, broccoli, kohlrabi, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, and others. And the possibility of you getting not the result you would hope for requires that you get educated about more challenging plants like that. Yeah, a little bit. And, and I mean, it can be as simple as a few years ago, I put Swiss chard and beets right next to each other and let them go to seed and I collected their seeds. What happened? They crossed. They crossed. And so when I replanted them, I wasn't getting the results that I was expecting. Right. So we need skill and we need knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And generally speaking, the seed saving part is really just letting your plants go to seed and then collecting the seeds. Yes. That's that's most of it. Yeah. So I'll give you the example of something that would some really easy ones. Please. And the easiest ones are annuals. Uh-huh. So annuals do represent most of the food plants that we grow. And yep. if we put aside for right now conversation about grains, which most people won't be growing. Right. The easy annuals that people save are things like tomato, beans, peas, corn, peppers, uh, sunflowers. These tend to be larger seeds, so they're real easy to handle. Right. Children can figure it out right away. Yeah. And crossing between different varieties is the main thing that you want to be educated about. Mm. So, for example, with corn, which is wind-pollinated, you have to consider if you have more than one variety or if your neighbor has a different variety, variety. and yeah. the wind is blowing your way, then there might be some mixing. But there are lots of tricks so, for example, if you have an early corn and a late corn, they uh-huh. won't cross-pollinate each other. Oh, right. If you have a prevailing wind that always comes from the same direction at the time the tassels are forming, the chances are really good that you uh, can plant, let's say it's a west wind, so you have maybe a garden one or 200 feet long, so you plant one at the north end and one mm. at the south end, and they won't cross. Yeah. You can plant a trap crop, which is something tall that would interfere with the heavy corn pollen from boreal, like sunflowers, pole beans, uh, Jerusalem artichokes. So there's many little tricks like that if you want to add more diversity. But certainly, as a beginner, one would want to just try to grow maybe one of a kind and see how that works and get some skill and then branch out from there. Yeah, and I, I've been doing it for years, and generally, if I'm saving seeds, that's what I do. I, I grow one kind of tomato. I isolate it in my yard, and 
and uh, then save the seeds from it. Exactly. And the other option, if you're thinking of it in terms of broader diversity, is networking. So you get together with two, three, or a mm. dozen other people, maybe in different neighborhoods, yep. and kind of farm out the different varieties to where uh, people can help each other by growing the seeds separately and then offering them to each other and in an exchange. Seeds. Nice. Nice. So you've actually said several different things that I kind of want you to address. Um, some of them are simple, like tell everybody what an annual is. Well, that's a plant that uh, typically is planted in the spring and harvested in the fall. And then by the time it's uh, completed its annual cycle, it has made ripe seed. And then it would be not grown in the winter. Right. There might be exceptions, such as uh, around Phoenix, you've got year-round growing conditions oh, yeah, for we do. annuals. Yeah. yeah. But most people probably who will listen to this are in places where there's a frost or even colder weather, maybe snowy weather, mm -hmm. and they have to put their annuals aside for the winter right. and start again next year. So for them, it's really important to be able to save those seeds and replant uh, yeah. some months later. Interesting, here in the desert, we put our annuals away in the summer. <laughs> a lot sure. of them, a lot of them. So, and then you mentioned, you use several terms uh, around seeds. You said open pollinated, you said hybrid, and you said GM. So can you kind of unpack those a little bit? To, sure. Yeah. So open pollinated is the way that plants were grown exclusively up until about 70 or 80 years ago meaning the natural vectors for pollination, which would be wind, water, uh, and pollinating insects or birds. Uh, that would include sometimes even moths or even little crawling things like ants. Yeah. All contribute to the pollination, which precedes the formation of the seed. Mm -hmm. What changed about 80 years ago was that um, people who had studied genetics, started to realize they could mingle two species. And a very simple example would be to grow two corn varieties side by side so that the pollen could move freely from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And then the result might be something that, let's say that one was blue and one was white, so you might get a speckled corn the next year. Nice. Or you might be able to the word that they use is emasculate, which mm -hmm. means remove the male part of one variety so that only the second variety provides the male pollen for oh, the silks. Right. Thereby you could take a quality from the second variety that's providing the male pollen, let's say earliness. Right. And mingle it with the other variety that might have a different quality like productivity. Mm -hmm. uh, so each person growing who wants to do that is, is becomes a plant breeder and is creating what suits them the best rather than just accepting uniform varieties that are grown on large acreages by seed companies. And it's these, certainly the more, more interesting, the more fun part of, of growing is oh yeah. that you can grow your own varieties. And this is so called that, a, this is called a hybrid, right? That's the explanation, a simple explanation for uh, a hybrid. So it's no longer open pollinated because when you uh, remove the males from one variety, you mm -hmm. change the, situation to a control rather than an open pollinate. And that, I won't say one's better than the other, but right. uh, they're very different for sure. Yeah. What happened in the seed trade was that companies saw that they could create their own hybrids and then have total control over the distribution of those hybrids and thereby make more money. Mm -hmm. So that was the motivation for that. 
Well, by 1980, there was something introduced called plant variety protection, which was a patenting and allowed companies to totally control the distribution of the varieties that they were creating. Mm -hmm. And then what followed that about 10 years later was uh, GM was genetically modified, meaning that uh, the seeds had actually been changed under laboratory conditions by going into their mitochondria and swapping genes so that uh, you could introduce a gene from a different variety in a way that might not occur just by uh, nature's vectors, the pollinators and so forth. So uh, now we're at the stage which seems like the ultimate stage of that development of going from nature happily doing what she does in the field to uh -huh. uh, totally controlling in specified predictable conditions that can be marketed in an exclusive sort of a way. Yeah. And now this whole GM thing, that doesn't happen in nature, correct? Right. Yeah. Great. So generally speaking, are GM crops available for us end users? Well, for sure. In certain kinds of plants in particular, the ones that could be exploited the most for profit. Uh -huh. So uh, we see some GM crops. Uh, the most common ones are, of course, are corn, and, corn and soybeans, which mm -hmm. are grown on massive scale, but that's not something that you and I would have in our backyard. Right. And that's what we, I was speaking to. Right. So for the consumer, the small gardener, the urban farmer, there are not that many GM varieties in the marketplace, but certainly there are some. And a typical vegetable seed catalog will identify those. It really should in any case. Right. So that uh, it tells you that you basically you can't save seed from this. If you were thinking of doing that, forget about it. But more importantly for me, I think, and many others, it's a concern about what is the food quality of that genetic, genetically modified plant? Right. Is, it, um, is there a hidden downside to it that is reflected in human health? And therefore, I really want to know when I plant a seed if it's genetically modified because I might perhaps choose not to grow it out of concern for the health aspect that hasn't been fully explored. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So can you, can you tell us about your... Inside Passage Seed Company. What do you what do you do? You're collecting. You said wildflower seeds, right? Well, after almost 20 years of in, of the Abundant Life Seed Foundation, which I started in the mid 70s, mm -hmm. and had developed to a point where we were doing a lot of seed distribution, a lot of seed networking, uh, had seeds in retail outlets in 25 states printing 40,000 catalogs and really having a lot of fun doing it. Uh -huh. uh, there was a point where I just was attracted more to the wild. Hmm. And the by the wild, I mean, uh, we've always listed as many native plants as possible. That would be trees, shrubs, wildflowers. And later on, I got into native grasses. Uh -huh. And there really wasn't a market for it at that time. Maybe we'd sell a few packets in an entire year of a particular flowering bush that was native to the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. which was our primary market. And uh, there were uh, like a series of events that happened that triggered in me this wish to just go native. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I've really done everything that I wanted to do with vegetables by now. And maybe, maybe it's time to um, take a leap and see if I can make it as a native plant seedsman. 
And so I took that leap, and I know we're going to talk more about it later because I know you have some questions for me that will lead to that. Mm -hmm. But the upshot of it was that right at the same time, by great good fortune, or maybe actually a little bit of calculation, uh -huh. uh, there was a regional movement to start growing more native plants. Mm -hmm. Up to that time, you would have a hard time finding a lot of the native trees and shrubs in a nursery because, there, like I say, there was no real market. There was no demand for it. And we had two regional symposiums at that time where hundreds of people came with the same enthusiasm and said, what are we going to do about this? So first off, we got educated, and then a whole bunch of people started nurseries at the same time. And I will say that many of those people are still my clients. It's 24, 25 years later. Right. They did make a go of it, and uh, even today, before this call, I filled orders for several of those people. Wow. So we're old friends, although some of us have only met once or twice in person. Mm -hmm. But there's this reliability that, you know, I produce the seeds, they obtain the seeds, they grow their nursery stock, and then they go out into hundreds or thousands wow. of neighborhood gardens into institutional plantings like schools right. and, yeah, parks. And so my clients include uh, many tribes. We have in Washington State over 30 tribal groups, and mm -hmm. quite a few of them are my clients. They're revegetating their lands with the things that used to grow there or that have been pressed by development. So they're very committed to recreating the original nature, you might right. say, right. as well as parks, the nurseries and governments. So I have city, county and state as clients. I have the national government in the form of national forests, mm -hmm. national parks. At different times, all these different agencies have uh, come to me for seeds. So that's, that's my clientele. And then, nice. of course, some gardeners. Yeah. Not many. Most will go to those nurseries and get plants get rather plants. than exactly. do the starting themselves from seeds. But yeah. yeah, all those people. So it's really quite diverse and it's very interesting. Nice. So tell me a little bit about the Abundant Life Seed Foundation and what was your motivation to get that started and what kind of impact did it have? Well, that's a great question and I'm very happy to talk about that. At that time... It was very hard to find open pollinated seeds in the general marketplace. And I was managing those first two years in our little natural food store in the neighborhood in Seattle uh -huh. to put out a pretty diverse selection of seeds for people. And I started including flowers and herbs right away. It was, it seemed like there was a, a, a need there and it wasn't being met, particularly in the region. So when I first started, I, I went to a distributor that puts racks out in all the hardware stores and garden centers all over the region uh -huh. and said, uh, I'm interested in getting a rack into our store. What have you got? And what they came up with was the same selection of seeds that, and this was in Seattle, that you might get in Boise or Medford, Oregon, mm, and right. those places have really different conditions. They're, <laughs> yeah. You know, from cool and wet, you've got hot and dry, and yet they put out the same seeds in all those places. Yeah. And by that time, I was already well into the bioregional movement, which started up around, well, right after People's Park, actually, uh -huh. and had figured out that we really wanted to be as local as we could be for the benefit of 
well, all species. Uh-huh. So after the second season of selling seeds in our in our natural food store, I decided to take a flying leap and start a business just devoted to the seeds and to organic gardening as a neighborhood service. Right. And I had a kind of a vision for that. It expressed itself as a mandala, and the mandala looked sort of like a like an eye in the sense that it was round and it had these different sectors in it. So it kind of divided it into 12 sections like a zodiac. Mm-hmm. And each part of it expressed something seasonal, something regional, something educational, something, I guess you could say commercial, because there would be a product associated with it. Right. So that gave me a roadmap. And mm. I thought I would develop that and went looking for a storefront to do that. In, and I could not find one in my area. There, there weren't any empty storefronts around. And it came to be... January and and I thought well I already know how to package the seeds and do that service for our community I guess I'll do it by mail oh. so I printed up a catalog which was a flat sheet that was folded together origami into a sunflower oh nice and with a little piece of tape to hold it from opening up when it went out in the mail uh-huh. uh, so it, it actually broke down into something that was about, I think, about six inches by six inches mm-hmm. with a stamp on it. But when you opened it up, it, it opened like a sunflower, and inside were the listings of all the vegetables, herbs, and flowers, and so forth, and books, and a few other things that, you know, was the whole message for that year. Yeah. When... And by the end of that first season, I had been contacted by a number of stores that wanted to display the seeds, so I had eight retail outlets and mail order customers, and the thing was off and running. Mm-hmm. I started it, by the way, on $100. <laughs> nice. Um, because it's like seeds themselves. You can grow money if you know how to, let's say, replicate it. Yeah. It's, it's an art. So at the end of that season, um, I began to think, well, I can see where this is leading me, and... At that time, I had a friend who had some property, some beautiful rural acres here on the Olympic Peninsula, and we began to talk about the possibility of turning it into a seed farm, and then I thought, uh, well, I guess maybe a nonprofit would be a good way to go about this, and Mm -hmm. then the nonprofit could be holding the property and growing the enterprises or practices on the property. Right. And shortly after that, and before I could actually develop the nonprofit, my friend died. Oh. And then there was a, all of his circle of people said, well, what's going to happen to the land? We can't let the land be neglected or get sold off by the family because they weren't into all these ideas. He was his right. own person. So uh, I went ahead and I uh, applied for the nonprofit status, succeeded with that. And by the time I got the nonprofit status, which would then allow people to make donations of cash mm-hmm. so we could buy the farm, uh, things had kind of moved on and the family had put the farm up for sale. So in the end, I wound up with the nonprofit as a holding body for the seed work, but the land slipped away and got sold. Mm. And it got divided into three separate parcels and you know, right away, uh, people started doing different things with the land. And so this hundred year old homestead with the original fruit trees and all had, you know, just slipped away and 
I did get to visit it again about 20 years later, and it really was the rundown version of what we were envisioning in 75. Oh, wow. So uh, I guess I was relieved to feel like, well, I'm glad I didn't get caught up in that because it didn't go where we would have wanted it to go. Yeah. But at the same time, it was kind of a tragedy uh, that this very special place became something you know much less than what it had its potential to be. It could have been a living history museum, for example. In any case, uh, went on with Abundant Life from there and just began to create a seed network. So uh, always there was a theme of education mm -hmm. that not only are we making these seeds available for everybody to try to grow their own and to use for breeding material if they want to grow different innovative varieties, but also to provide literature that people can learn from, to do the right. workshops, and it was a membership organization. So before long, we had thousands of members. <laughs> nice. And making a small contribution, like $10 or $20 a year to support this project. Right. And things just rolled along from there to the point where I mentioned earlier where we had the 25 states with retail outlets, the 40,000 catalogs, the network of about 50 growers spread across about six or eight states. And then, uh, like I said, in 1992, I really got caught up with the idea of working with natives. So I took a, this another flying leap and decided to start Inside Passage Seeds as my sole-owned enterprise. Right. And I, I was a little bit burned out on group process by oh, then, too. Yeah, that can get uh, challenging, that's for sure. The board of directors and so forth and trying to keep everybody happy, the employees and it just got to a point where I thought, I'd like to go independent here and kind of start over with a different idea and yeah. have more a simpler management strategy. <laughs> so I did yeah. that. And, uh -huh. um, well, I, it took a while to land on my feet. I know you're going to ask me a question about, well, I'll preview it, uh, about what I failed at. So this is where the answer will come. But All I can right. save that for later if you prefer. No, actually, that's a great place to go. How about okay, if we talk about a time you failed? That. So... When I made this decision, uh, the thing that really propelled me to make that decision after the 1992 spring season of distributing the seeds, for one, that year's catalog was really the ultimate of the many unique catalogs we had produced, uh -huh. and I thought, we'll never top this. And it was like an artistic endeavor that I did for 18 years, uh -huh. and, and I felt like this is the ultimate, so that's not so important now. And then there were newspaper articles that year because I had convinced the local airport to plant wildflowers next to the runways. Uh, short version of that wow. is they had uh, expanded the airport and cleared a lot of land. And in the process of clearing the land, they it was kind of brutal. And uh, thousands of people drive past the airport every day, and they were just – You'd get in line at the post office and the person in front of you would say, isn't it terrible about the airport? So I went down to the commissioners and said, mm -hmm. you know, you're losing your public support. I think something you could do there is uh, plant wildflowers. And then I told them that the original land that the airport was put on was a native prairie before, the, before 1900, even earlier than that. So when uh -huh. the settlers first came, they built a stockade there because oh. the uh, – the tribe that was nearest to the airport had been burning that prairie for hundreds of years. That's how you keep it from becoming forested. Right. 
and it had all the edible and medicinal, what we would call wildflowers, but for them, that was their wild garden, uh, mm. maintained by fire, and then uh, it was extirpated by the settlers that came in and just changed the ecology of it completely. So I told the commissioners, you know, you could reclaim part of that original heritage of this land by planting these wildflowers. And they said, okay, we'll put $1,000 into it. So I thought, great, now that'll be my launching into my new business. <laughs> right. And so it worked. It, the flowers bloomed. It was quite spectacular. People were coming out with easels and painting these landscapes. And the seeds were growing along the roadside. And so they got picked up by vehicles, tires, yeah, for example, and spread yep. down the road. And pretty soon there were lupins growing all over the county. And it was great. But it turned out that there wasn't a market yet. So the failure really was I anticipated this movement, but I got in a little bit early. A little bit early. That so, was what, that's what we call the bleeding edge, right? <laughs> true. Yeah. So I went from being basically self-employed and having a livelihood that worked to being almost unemployed and not having enough to live on. Yeah. And that was what I would call midlife crisis. Yeah. But so, fortunately, the what I mentioned earlier about people starting nurseries at that time, it, mm -hmm. it, it succeeded. And pretty soon I was actually having a demand for these native seeds and it became my support again. And I've been living from that now for 20 years. So nice. there was a, a trough, but I came back up and things are much yeah. better now than they ever were before. Nice. So what do you consider your biggest success? Uh, well, just the continuity of finding my calling when I was about 25 or 26 mm. years old yeah, and beautiful. following that yeah. and not doubting it ever that this is what I'm here to do. Finding the people that I needed to work with in order to make this life possible and then continuing to do it. Now I'm 70 years old this year. Wow. And uh, I don't see an end. I see role models that I had who were native wildflower seed collectors and dealers who got into their 80s doing this work. Yeah. So, you know, as long as you have physical mobility and you always have the skill, you mm -hmm. have the knowledge mm -hmm. because you know where to find these things in the wild. Yeah. Then there's really nothing except the ultimately decrepitness that's going to stop me from doing this. Yeah. And I see that being some years off. So I would say that's a success. And um, uh, I'm, you know, thriving with it, and I have enthusiasm every year to keep doing it. Nice. So what do you? What drives you? I really want to repair the earth. Mm. In the Jewish tradition, there's a word tikkun, mm -hmm. tikkun olam which means the restoration of the earth. And a lot of people are picking that term up now. They, not necessarily Jewish people, but uh, it's, it's networking out into the wider community that that's the time we are in. We've yeah. spent the 20th century tearing the earth apart. And now, if we're going to have a planet to survive on, we, or a biosphere at least, yeah. we really need to restore I don't mean things will ever be just like they were 100 years ago or 200 years ago, but we need to keep all the pieces in this puzzle and put as many of them in place in some capacity as we can so that all species can thrive. Yeah. And I see that as possible. I've experienced my own success in that, working with hundreds or thousands of people who are engaged in that work now, and we celebrate that. Each person has their part they can play in it. 
whether they live in the city, in the country, yeah. there's always a place that is neglected, that's calling out for wildness, that wants to be a habitat that is oppressed. When I was a kid, I used to go and play down by the railroad tracks in mm. my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, well, it was fun because it was wild in the city. You know, it's totally neglected. We would hide in the weeds and you know, yep. play war and things like that. Yeah. We would play in the coal dust from the trains. That was probably really bad for my health, but who knew? Right. Uh, but now I would go into a habitat like that and say, we got to clean up the soil. We have to remediate the spoilage of this site with mushrooms and beneficial bacteria in the soil, microorganisms, make this place healthy, and then plant things that nature intended to be here. Yeah. So that's my work. Beautiful. It sounds like you've done that really well over and over again yeah. yeah yeah so i'm all about education i have to know is there one book that has been influential for you in this process i'm going to suggest the, the book that originally turned me on to all of this was uh, gary snyder's earth household which was mm-hmm. published in around april of 1969 wow. exactly at the same moment as people's park so i was open for influence at that point and gary yeah. snyder is possibly America's greatest living poet. Uh, He was Mm. part of the beat poets that included Ginsburg, and he was associate of Jack Kerouac. And I could mention many names that your listeners should know, but many of them don't. But Gary Snyder is still alive in his 80s, and he's had a remarkable life. And his book, Earth Household, is the literal translation of the Greek word ecology. Oh, nice. And uh, he laid out some principles in there that right right to the heart for me. And sure enough, after reading the book, after helping with hundreds of other people to launch People's Park and dropping out of city planning and becoming uh, just a community person for Mm -hmm. a while, Uh I uh, heard Gary Snyder speak. We had a teach-in at the end of the People's Park movement. And there were some amazing people who came. There were about 4,000 people out in the Sproul Plaza at Berkeley campus. And one after the other, they delivered a message that I know a lot of us got our life directions from that message. And Gary was last. So by that time, most people had left. It was late afternoon. And he said, everybody come come in close here. And, you know, he dropped the microphone and he said, uh, it's great what you're doing here. Uh, I know this is really important for all of you and for this town. And But what you need to do now is really get your feet on the earth and learn some things directly <laughs> from nature. Mm. And, and so he had two people there who were basically wilderness guides, associates of his. And he said, you should go out with these men and I'll take you up in the mountains and you'll learn all kinds of things that that will make your life so much richer. So I did that. And we hiked all over California. Uh, I learned the constellations in the sky. I learned many plants. I learned how to fish. Uh, I learned things about my own body from being out in the wilderness and sleeping on granite slabs. (laughs) So I found myself in 1969 in Yosemite National Park at about 9,000 feet with some other backcountry folks. Uh We looked up at the full moon and we knew that the first Apollo astronauts had landed on the moon that very day. Oh, my gosh. This is before I was a seed collector. 
So in a way, it was kind of like going to the to the mountain, uh, Moses style, you know, and uh, realizing, you know, what is the human destiny and what is it we're doing here that contrasts with uh, going out into space. And I realized from everything I had learned that year from Gary Snyder, from the People's Park experience, even from the city planning school, Mm -hmm. that we had to restore the earth. So I, I basically got my signals right then. <laughs> yeah. And when we came off that mountain, uh, I began to really study plants. I was not a, a botanist at all, and my yeah. experience in the garden was pretty much mowing the grass for my family when I was growing up. In fact, I, I went home to visit about a year after that, and I looked out of my bedroom window that I had lived in for many years, and for the first time ever, I noticed that the neighbor's yard had an apple tree in it. Oh, my gosh. So when I was a teenager and growing up, I didn't even realize that there was an apple tree 30 feet from my bed. Yeah. I didn't have the eyes to see that yet. So that's kind of the personal revolution I went through at that point. And then once I got into the economics of it, I, I kind of had a natural sense about doing business. I probably learned it from my father. Uh-huh. So I just got into it and, you know, it really uh, floats my boat. I really enjoy the Nice. Uh, the buying and selling and trading, yeah. and I do a lot of bartering too. Nice. Uh, it's just it's just fun. It's an exchange yeah. of energy with people. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Especially the they landed on the moon while you're standing there watching them in Yosemite. That was right. that was epic. I'll tell you one other thing that happened that day. Uh huh. Quite a day. Uh, we were walking across uh, one of the glaciers in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a big glacier, but um, it's a long, big, snowy mass that eventually ends up in a tarn, which is a glacial lake. Uh-huh. And it was July, so a lot of the water was melting, and it was pretty slick. And somebody had gone before me and cut footsteps into the glacier with their boots. So the strategy was I just walk in their footsteps, and I get across the glacier. Right. Well, a little ways out, uh, it gave way, and I slid, and I started to go down the glacier really fast, and uh, conceivably would have wound up in that glacial lake and died. It was a life-threatening experience. Uh But just as I started sliding down, there was a big boulder, uh, a dark-colored rock, and maybe 10 feet tall, and the sun warming that rock had melted a little trough around the rock. So as I went by, I was able to hook my arm on the rock, and I slipped right into the trough, and that was the end of the slide. Wow. It's kind of like a life-saving miracle. Yeah. And then I just walked around the rock, and I was able to get out the other side and just start over, and I actually wound up going all the way over the top of the glacier. I didn't want to try to cross it a second time. Yeah. (laughs) But um, that was quite a day. (laughs) I'll say. So, wow, what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Follow your dream. Uh, that's my life experience. I was going to say, it sounds like you've these, done that. Yeah, I had these clues along the way, and, and there were risks. Like, what if what if this fails? Uh, will I wind up at a desk job working in some company that I don't really have the same values with? Yeah. Well, that never happened. I, I guess I'm fiercely independent that way, and I've had some challenging times in the early 80s where I was barely making it. Mm -hmm. But somehow or other, I always pulled through. I will say that once uh, in that time when I started Inside Passage and it took about two years to get things 
to a level where I could actually live on the business, my mother came through for me, you know, and she loaned me some money so that I could make it through that time. Yeah. Uh, and that was, as I said, the time that was the most challenging, the midlife crisis. Yeah. But other than that, you know, it's been a great ride for the last 45 years. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Forrest. It's been a treat getting to chat with you. You're welcome. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, when I visited your website, I saw a lot of friends of mine who you've spoken with before oh, in other yeah. podcasts and a few that, of course, that I didn't know. So I'll probably spend more time there uh, picking up on what other people are doing all over this country. Perfect. Perfect. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? They can go to my website, which is InsidePassageSeeds.com. Perfect. And they will find about 200 seed listings there of ah. trees, shrubs, wildflowers, and grasses of the Pacific Northwest. And really the intended audience for that is in the Pacific Northwest. That's why it's called Inside Passage, mm -hmm. which of course are the waters on the Northwest Coast. Right. As well, I have customers in uh, Germany, Australia, New Zealand. Wow different parts of the United States, certainly across the northwest of Canada. Mm -hmm. And people are always up for trying new things. And yeah. for many, these flowers are going to be really special if they have the right environment to grow them in. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, if you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. 
It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.